Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Welcome to our newest season of Humane Podcast in 2021. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and this is Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to our show. Welcome back to the Humane Podcast listeners. Today, our guest speakers are Jacqueline Nolis, a data science consultant, and Emily Robinson, a senior data scientist at Warby Parker. Jacqueline and Emily have recently launched a brand new book with the Manning publication known as Build a Career in Data Science. For all our listeners of the show, you may know me as not only a data scientist, but someone who loves education. So I think this is a phenomenal book, especially in the time of COVID-19, to see how we can make it in the career of data science. Jacqueline and Emily, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's start off a little bit to know more about both of yourselves. Prior to this offline, we were talking about that, uh, Jacqueline, you've been to our galvanized Seattle location, and Emily, you're in New York, so we definitely have some shared connects, but love to hear more about both of you. So yeah, uh, my name is Jacqueline Nolis. I am a data science consultant, so I go around helping companies like T-Mobile, Expedia with their data science problems. My background was in mathematics. I got an undergrad in math, master's in math. And I worked for a few years, and I really wanted to help businesses use math to solve problems. Um, and this was before the field was called data science. So I went and worked for a few years at like analytics and that sort of thing. And I'm like, I really want to learn more techniques because everything I know is theoretical math. So I went and got a doctorate in industrial engineering, and then I started working as a consultant. And so for the last the eight or 10 years or so, I've been doing data science consulting for all sorts of companies and leading data science teams, and now writing a book on how to become and grow your career in data science. And as for me, in college, well, it wasn't called data science then, but I basically studied very related fields of statistics, and that's where I started programming in R. Went on from there to get my master's in organizational behavior, and then did Metis, which is uh, another data science boot camp. Did that for three months and went on to Etsy Data Camp, and now Warby Parker as a senior data scientist. And basically, I got interested in data science because... Actually, the social sciences, I find the quantitative social sciences is a very good background to lead into data science because the social science research process is very similar. It's, you know, thinking of a a question you want to answer, going out and finding that data that can help you answer it, analyzing it, 
and then presenting it to anyone from, uh, you know, your professor who has been in this field for decades to someone in another department who maybe doesn't have any special expertise there. And so learning how to tailor what you share about your your results and your methods uh, to the audience. So I thought it was a really good way to set me up for uh, career in data science. What I love about um, Jacqueline, Emily, what you both shared is that you've evolved your careers from academia to industry. And you've been in the industry even before was called data science. Much like myself, I was doing actuarial science and business intelligence and data analytics. And now the industry has coalesced into data science. We've even seen a lot of courses coming out online, you know, recently on LinkedIn Learning, the Future Proofing Your Data Science Career course launched, which could not be more timely, just like the launch of your book, Build a Career in Data Science, looking at everything going on in the world today, not only COVID-19, but the acceleration of technology. Why is this timely now to build a career in data science? So the reason why I would say it's timely now is so Emily and I, we both go around, we go to a lot of conferences and we give talks and we actually met each other because we were both giving talks at the same conference. And when you give a lot of talks at conferences, you get a lot of people coming up to you asking, how did you get to where you are, right? Or, you know, if they're not data scientists yet, like, oh, I really, that, what you do seems cool. I really want to be that. And we we both just hit points where we're like, oh my goodness, so many people, like, like, there's just clearly (laughs) some desire in the world that people are data scientists. Or if you're a junior data scientist, like a desire in the world to be one of these senior data scientists giving talks at conferences and joining the community. And so we, um, we just noticed organically that this is happening more than like us making some grand observation about the state of the world. I would say, uh, Emily, you're feel free to disagree with me on any of that. But <laughs> Yeah, no, I think it like why I was so interested in writing a book was because I, it's really, as Jacqueline was saying, like a great way to scale up advice because like I still get like LinkedIn messages, like other folks reaching out, like wanting to get started. And I definitely want to help people. But at some point, you know, we found it was, it's, been better for us to take time to like write blog posts, take a lot of time to write this book, really think about this stuff, work with each other. We also interview a lot of people in the books, we get their perspectives. And that that I think is really the the best help I can offer people, you know, who want to get into this field. And I do think there's a lot of people both, as Jacqueline was saying, want to get into it. But then, you know, you bring up like the current moment also recognizing, okay, how do I may become even like more valuable to the employer. I may end up having to do a job search. Um, what can I do to sort of prepare that I can be, you know, an, an attractive candidate to different companies? You know, and one thing that you both mentioned so much is about building that portfolio, whether it's with a bootcamp program or getting involved in apprenticeship, it's getting that hands-on tangible experience in data science. We look at it all across the field, whether it's the portfolio, the simulations, the case studies, the capstones, these are ways to get your hands dirty coding so that you gain that experience and proficiency and scale up the advice as you put it so well right there, Emily. I'd like to dive deeper into the book, into Build a Career in Data Science. Can you tell us a little bit about what are the chapters and what are you focusing on in the book? Yeah, I can take that. So the book we split up into four parts. And the first part is basically what is data science? What does it look like at different companies? So someone who's like heard the term, maybe not that familiar with wondering, okay, uh, how do I get these skills? What are the different paths? And you know, chapter four there, as you mentioned, is on building a portfolio. So that's the first part. The second part is like, great, you've got some skills. Like now it's time for the job search. So how do you find jobs? What does the interview process look like? All the way up to negotiating an offer. So that's the first half. And then the second half of the book and the third part is uh, around settling into your job. So what should you expect in the first month? What are our, our advice for you know writing a good analysis, um, putting machine learning model into production and dealing with stakeholders. And then finally, the last half is about, you know, maybe you started settling in. And this is where someone I think who's even been in the field for a year or two might still find a lot of value because it's about continuing to grow. So in doing that by joining the community, handling failure, which is pretty much inevitable when you're a data scientist, going on to a new job. And then the final chapter is what are the things you can do even after you become a senior data scientist? So thinking about management, independent consulting, or being a principal data scientist. Then finally, actually, we have an interview appendix with over 30 questions of um, interview questions, example answers, and then also some notes about what usually people are looking for when they ask these questions and what makes a good answer. 
So it's so interesting because the book is hitting on two core areas of data science. First is just when you're getting started and then when you're accelerating that growth to grow from, I think as you both well put it, especially Jacqueline, from a junior to a senior data scientist. And there's many things to do there. You mentioned stakeholders, community, moving up the ladder, leaving the job gracefully. These are just some of the chapters you're covering in the book. And I'd love to get to all of them. But before we dive deeper into them and why they're relevant now. Of course, the big topic of the year, the century is COVID-19. And, um, you know, for us at Galvanize, we do a lot with both consumer and enterprise. So similar to some of the clients you mentioned, like Warby Parker, T-Mobile, and Expedia, we're exploring these different companies for data science teams. And what does it look like to manage data science during the time of COVID-19? In your experience, what are some of the things that you're seeing? So I would say the thing I've been seeing a lot just in general, right, is like no one really knows what's happening, right? No one, or, you know, for the last like two months, no one's really knows what happened. No one's going to know what's going to happen for a while now. We're just in a really uncertain time. And so when it comes to like employing teams of data scientists, like it's just hiring is slow because you really, like, do you really want to start, like, do you really want to double the size of your data science team? You don't know if your company's going to be around in six months. You know, like there's just, it's everything's more uncertain. And so I think that, staffing decisions around data science, they're being put on pause because that's not, um, often data science isn't like the one thing keeping the company running. And so I think things are just a little bit tighter in that regard. And then I would also say, um, similarly, you know, just from a consulting side, you know, a lot of companies just in the same way as they're not necessarily hiring and growing their staff, they're also like, like, oh, should we try and build that innovative next best action model, you know, or should we try and do that innovative churn thing like right now in the middle of the virus? Or should we really stick to like the basics of what our job is instead of trying to push the envelope? So it seems like a lot of like hunkering down is what I've been seeing. Yeah. And definitely some like within companies, I think shifting priorities and like being prepared to adapt with that. Like you might've been working on this project that as Jacqueline saying is maybe more ambitious, maybe more longer term and that needing to shift to a shorter term need because that's just, uh, you know, the direction the business is going is different. So Warby, for example, all of our retail stores are currently closed. So of course, you know, we've been focusing on e-commerce and that's how Warby Parker started. And I think, but I think what, you know, what Jacqueline was saying and what I'm saying, it's like, it definitely doesn't just hold for data science, right? A lot of companies are, are putting on hiring freezes in general, except for like very critical roles or lots of teams are shifting what they're doing. So I think, you know, I think for people now, it's just preparing to be adaptable and also, um, you know, whether that's in a job search and maybe looking at jobs that originally, you know, that don't necessarily meet all of your criteria, just having to be flexible there or within your work being like, okay, you know, this team needs a dashboard. And is it the most technically interesting work? No, but like this can help them right now. It can help make us some more money. And it's okay that I put on pause this like, you know, more ambitious uh, model that we're not going to see a payoff from for a year. I think that's so well put. I mean, whether it's internally at the companies that we're all working at today, or for all of our listeners here, I say that, you know, if you're currently employed in data science, you should be looking for opportunities within. And it may not just be traditional data science. It could be dashboarding. It could be helping other business units. It could be product marketing, sales engineering, developer advocacy, wherever that falls so that you can help your organization succeed at the same And guess what? You get to learn some new skills. And although they're not all coding in Python and R, they're directly relevant to accelerating your career growth. So with that in mind, we've talked a little bit about COVID, but I'd love to dive deeper into some of these chapters, especially around enterprises, you know, looking at big company scale and how there's so many dynamics with the people and the processes and the systems at play. One chapter that I found really fascinating, which was about managing stakeholders. And every organization has a different stakeholder, but what are some of the common threads that you've seen around managing stakeholders? So let me just say to start, um, you know, when we're brainstorming a book, right, on build a career data science, you're thinking about what chapters do you want? You know, you think a lot of the typical things about data science, right? Like making analyses, choosing the right language. What about databases, right? Like we kind of looked at a lot of that. We're like, eh, like, 
it doesn't, we don't have anything interesting to, I mean, we have some interesting stuff to say, but nothing, nothing worth writing, you know, reading a book about just about like our stance on databases or those things like that. But I think that's really, really important to be a good data scientist and people don't talk about as much as they should or something like managing stakeholders. Like this is really something that will make the difference on if a data scientist is successful or not much more than is it my sequel or Postgres sequel. And so we wrote, you know, a chapter for this book about stakeholders. And it's hard because how you work with stakeholders or really how you interact with anyone who is not a data scientist, that can really, that's like a pivotal part of your job, but there's so many things that go into that. And so one of the things we do in the chapter is we, you know, we really break it down into thinking about the different types of stakeholders you have. So, you know, you may have the engineering stakeholders who take the output of your machine learning model that you created and actually deploy it. And you may have the business stakeholders who take the analysis you use a model for and have to make a decision on it. And then you have like the executive stakeholders that have to like lead the whole business and look at your team doing something interesting. It's like, oh, wow, that might be the future. I really need to hone in on that. So each one of those stakeholders has like a different goal, whether it's to make their engineering stronger, to make better decisions, to make their company go to a better place in the long term. And, you know, how you work with each one of these peak groups of people really will differ based on who they are and what their goals are. So we break down that a lot. And then, you know, we also just talk about like how you think about them as people. We have a great quote from Elizabeth Hunter, who is a uh, executive at T-Mobile, um, about or executive vice president at T-Mobile. You know, we have like a, like just a lot of discussion around, you know, how do you think through working with stakeholders? Yeah. And I think it was interesting, as I mentioned before, we have these interviews. Uh, so we have interviews at the end of every chapter and then side blurbs. And so, of course, we had an interview at the end of chapter 12, exactly on working with stakeholders. But it came like communication in general really came up in a lot of different interviews and a lot of different side blurbs of a skill that you know sometimes is lacking in new data scientists, isn't necessarily taught in programs, but is really crucial for having success in the career. And that's why you know we wanted to demystify it a little bit, like talk about it and explain like why we think it's important. And also, as Jacqueline was saying, like different strategies that you can adapt. You know, it's so interesting because as someone who works on both products and projects, I've seen many stakeholders in my career. You know, some of them could be the manager, the software engineer, the data analyst, data engineer, the C-suite, other analysts in the team. They all have different things going on. And you've mentioned and shared that depending on what the goals are and who they are, it's very critical. You know, one thing I love to do is build personas on who these stakeholders are or even do simulations. You know, what would the conversation <laughs> look like? What would the product workflow look like? I think that could help with communicating effectively. But there's so much more than thinking about how to communicate. It's actually communication. What are some of the key communication strategies you've seen be effective as well? So let me preface this which is, this is really hard. And, you know, Emily and I, we were on a, um, we did a, a talk for some um, students, I think down at Duke. I, mm-hmm. And I remember they just, they had this question, you know, this idea, like, well, how do you, how do you get good at working with stakeholders? How do you get good <laughs> at communication? And it's just like, I don't know, like, you just <laughs> do it a long time. And I think the answer I went with was you just mess up a lot until you remember how you messed up the last time and then get a little bit better. And you do that for like 10 or 20 years and eventually you're okay. <laughs> um <laughs> I think that was the best answer I could think of, but it's really like, it really is like, how do you, how do you human good? Like there's really, it's like such a vast question of just like, how do you connect with people? So it's like, it's really hard. And besides practicing, doing research, like reading books on this stuff and really just thinking about it a lot. I don't, I don't know if I have like a really cool one, one sentence answer that solves the stakeholder communication problem. Yeah, there, there's definitely not a one neat trick, but I do think like, I think Jacqueline, you're selling our, our you know, chapter a little bit short. <laughs> like we didn't write like 30 pages or something on it. And it wasn't like, learn how to human good by failing. Um, although I do think you're entirely, you're, you're right. But like, what, you know, like, so like one thing we write about is like being consistent, right? So like creating a consistent framework for how you share things. I also thought Speaking of like, you know, adapting it. So I saw a tweet from Oscar um, Barufa the other day, which is like who said he's finding himself in the position of a stakeholder, some other analyst work and found an eye opener. And one thing he said was that, you know, an email after a couple of weeks with here are the results was really baffling. Like he has all these projects going on, like remind him what they'd agreed on the last meeting, like what you did and how to interpret the results. 
So one, I think that's really good. So basically offer context, but it was interesting because I've almost always worked in Warby's the exception, but at DataCamp and Etsy, I worked in embedded teams. So I was working as an analyst with one team and actually I didn't usually need to do this because like they knew exactly what I was talking about because like we worked together every day. So they, they knew like it was a project they were working on the engineering side of, for example. So I thought that was an interesting you know, thing too of you can imagine like just because you're, you you maybe master communicating with engineers or when you're embedded, like it doesn't mean maybe you'll have to learn new things when you're working with a couple teams and they are working on stuff that you're not. And so you have to adapt your strategies. Yeah, Emily is right. We do give tips and guidance in the book and I recommend <laughs> you do research and buy our book, of course. Uh, of course. Um, I'd also say another thing we talk about in that chapter is just the idea of how do you prioritize this work? Because it's very easy as a data scientist yeah. to just you know, especially as a junior data scientist, you just do whatever the last person told you to do. And then especially <laughs> as you get more senior and suddenly you have 10 things coming in at once and you have to say some no to some stuff. But sometimes you really shouldn't be the person saying no. It should be your boss who's saying no, but then your boss is on vacation. Then what you do, like just having, thinking through a lot of the prioritization and deciding what work to do when, that's really important to good stakeholder management and something we, we cover within the book. That's excellent. I mean, one of our best practices that I work on our data science teams at Galvanize Enterprises, we use JIRA and different Kanban boards to definitely plan out what our product releases look like, uh, what our software standups are on a daily basis. You know, and I, I think you're exactly right. You got to set up those prioritizations to be doing the work. But it's not all just about doing the work and managing the stakeholders, because eventually you're going to ship, right, the releases, the products, the models, the software, whatever it looks like. And it's not always pretty. You know, one of the biggest <laughs> phrases we've heard from a lot of research institutes is that less than 20% of Fortune 500s have deployed AI or data science in production. There's a lot of failed products. In your perspectives, you have a chapter in the book on deploying models in production about how to handle these failed products. What are some of the things you have both seen about why projects fail? Yeah, so on the why projects fail. So I would say projects projects that you might put in production fail. They never make it to production. And projects where you're supposed to do an analysis and show a presentation to an executive making a decision also fail. Like there's failure can come in all shapes and sizes. Um, <laughs> For me, I find one of the most difficult types of failure is that when you're a data scientist, you generally have to like get people excited about a project before it starts. Like, guys, we're going to we're going to come in, we're going to do this great churn model and it's going to really change the business. Give me funding and people. And you get that. You get funding and people. And then you start working with the data and it turns out the data doesn't have a signal in it. Right. It's like if you're trying to predict a, a die roll using the, you know, you roll a die 10,000 times and you want to predict the 10,000 and first die roll, you will have, despite having lots of data, you will not actually have a signal to what the role will be next, because it's random. And so sometimes there's just not actually a single in there. And you have to go back and be like, sorry, that money and people didn't really get us what we wanted. And I think people hope, well, if they just use a more advanced model on that data, they eventually will find the single in there. But I think that's rarely the case. Usually, if you can't find it with a simple model, you're never going to find it. And that's a really big source of failure in the data science field. Yeah. And that's why I do think it's valuable balancing the projects you take on because sometimes you, you know, like Jacqueline say, you can't know ahead of time if a project's going to fail, but you can usually tell like what's going to be more riskier than others, right? Are we working with data we've never worked with before? Are we trying to do a predictive model or, you know, are we making a dashboard or something, right? Or like something you're more confident. That's more like analytics work, which often has a lower failure rate because it's more about kind of presenting the data that you have. So I do think it's also worth thinking about you know, as a team, like maybe not taking on only like, you know, pie in the sky, very high risk, like new cutting edge projects and balancing that with things that you're more confident you can deliver because that can help, you know, show people the value of the team. And then, you know, hopefully occasionally one of those more risky projects does pay off and it will probably pay off in a bigger way. And that can be really advantageous, but not necessarily betting everything on that. Yeah, traditionally, some of the G-Mafia or FANG companies have been known very much about focusing on shipping products. We've seen that with both Microsoft and Google that employees traditionally spend upwards of 80% of their time working on core products. So that is stable features and releases and updates to dashboards and analytics. But then the other 20% could be these pie-in-the-sky projects or these shiny object syndrome because they're <laughs> moonshots, right? They might change everything or they might not get there just yet. 
I'm curious about when the project fails. What's next? I mean, for all of us in life, failure is pretty difficult to accept. Rejection is pretty difficult to acknowledge. How can we better manage the risk of failure? So I would say this kind of goes back to the stakeholder chapter thing a bit, right? If you, just as I was talking about before, that type of failure where you're like, guys, everyone, please, your attention, we're going to make a cool data science model with this data. It's going to be great. Save the company. And it doesn't. You have to like let them down. That is a lot harder than if the conversation started with, hey, I think it maybe might work for us to try and build a churn model, but I'm not sure. And I'd like to do some research and try it a little bit first and see what we can do. And then if you do that, and then six weeks later, you're like, yeah, we tried it. It didn't really show any promise. And so we're going to cut it off. You've managed the expectations. And so when the reality set in, it's not so bad. So a lot of the work you need to do to handle a failure really starts long before the failure actually occurred. Otherwise, yeah, you're just making it really hard for yourself and trying to let people down. Yeah. And I think here, our uh, end of chapter interviewee, Michelle Keim, is the head of data science and machine learning at Pluralsight. She had some really good insights. And a couple of the points she had was that, uh, one, like making sure like to check in along the way and like getting feedback as necessary so it's not a surprise at the end. Second, like that failure is actually good. Like you want some failures. I remember when Jacqueline was writing this chapter, I was thinking back and I was like, you know, I'm actually not sure I've failed that much, you know, in my career. And I don't think that's a good thing. And I wasn't like, oh, it's because I'm the best data scientist ever. It's like, well, actually, I think like I haven't been taking a lot of risks and I've been playing it safe a bit more, like doing things I know I could take on, or I had the support person who could help if I got stuck. And so that's actually been something that I've been wanting to do more is, you know, push yourself a little bit because it means you're learning and you're growing and there's not really a replacement for, you know, failure. And then the final thing too, though, is with that, companies do have different cultures around failure. And at some places it, it is, you know, it, it's not seen as, as valuable. You might be punished for it. So I do think it's worth, uh, this is something Michelle brought up, it's worth like when job searching, trying to understand if that company has a culture of learning and ongoing feedback, because you do want to be at a place where it, it can be safe and understood that sometimes things do fail. And again, that it that it's good. And, and especially in data science, it's pretty much inevitable if you're taking on um, certain types of projects. Yeah, I think that makes so much sense because, you know, we're talking about in New York City and Seattle and Silicon Valley about the startups where it's normal to experiment and iterate and go through failure. And failure doesn't mean the startup's bankrupt. It just means, oh, Mm -hmm. the experiment didn't work. Let's run another experiment. Let's run another test. But depending on what company you're working for, these failures do require you to explain the results. So failures still can become wins for the company to explain, well, what was the reason the result happened? Do we need to collect more data? Do we need to reevaluate how the problem's being explored from design thinking? Or are there other hidden variables that may be there that cause this that we don't know about just yet? And I think as both of you, Emily and Jacqueline, have shared, some of that starts with conversations with the stakeholders at the start of the project, talking to managers saying, we want to consider to explore all these things. These are different questions that might help us during our journey, but we're going to approach it in a scientific process so that we can see, will we get a success? But if not, it's an experiment at its finest. Yeah. And I would just, just to add on, I mean, I would challenge the idea you were saying a little bit about the idea that um, startups are more comfortable with failing fast and frequently because that's like startups are lean and exciting. I mean, I've worked at small companies. I've worked at big companies where like we had a massive project fail. They're like, eh, we lost $2 million. Who cares? We have a lot of millions. (laughs) And I've worked at startups where, you know, things went slightly wrong and the management flipped out because, you know, like they're clinging to the the one chance they might have of breaking out of the startup world and becoming a big business. You know, so like it really depends on the culture, as Emily was saying. And I don't know if that In my experience, it hasn't correlated as much with size as I would have expected. Now, thinking about culture, so we are now in a remote-only world that has gone completely digital as a result of COVID. We're seeing a lot of platforms coming out there, traditional ones people are using to work remote, like Microsoft Teams and Slack and Zoom and Google Meet, and a lot of other interesting startups out there to mix up what that remote culture looks like. There's Tandem to work together. There's Rezo for these online conferences. Every startup's popping up every other day. It's really interesting. Interesting, but my question I have for both of you is, you know, about remote culture and how to successfully manage or 
build those workflows remotely. In my experience, you know, I've always had a role the last few years that's been a hybrid, in-person and remote. So the transition wasn't too hard. I think for me, it's been overly communicating is helpful because you're not always seen in a remote culture. But I wanted to hear from your perspectives, how has that transition been for both of you? And what are some of the norms that we can do in a remote culture to be successful? What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Yeah, I think a couple things. So for our team, so the data science team at Warby Parker already had two remote members and then uh, four people in person. So I do think it was a little easier for us, like we were used to not all being in person. But now, of course, the whole company's remote. And I think, actually, so one tool that's really helped in data science, which we actually didn't have before, is, I don't know whether it's tuple or tuple, but it's a like a screen sharing coding program, but you can like take over the other person's screen if you go into a certain mode or you can be in like drawing mode and like point things to them. And it's made it so much better than being like, go to line 80, like, can you type this thing? Like spell it this way. So that, that's been a really nice tool for remotely pairing. The other thing I think that's been fun is we've been as like a tech team and where we trying to do things like happy hours or show and tell. So someone did like a virtual cocktail hour, you know, like Friday end of day. And I think just finding ways to connect with people and recognizing, for example, in team meetings that, you know, there may be more chit chat at the beginning than there normally is. And so building in time for that because people want to connect and catch up and, you know, see how folks are doing. And then finally, I think the definite don't is, oh, I was reading this New York Times article about like, you know, employers that are that are getting these softwares to monitor their employees' computers that will take like screenshots every 10 minutes. Like it makes a productivity measure that's based on like how many mouse clicks and like, you know, words you're typing. It's just like one that's like not productivity at all too. It's, I just think it hugely invades privacy. Even like you can have it install on your phone and like see where you go. So I do think that's a bad way to do it is to take over by micromanaging. And, uh, you know, if you have a healthy team culture, like you should be, you know, more, you should know what, like what outcomes you're striving for, like what success looks like there. Trust your team to, you know, do the work well, to give them the flexibility. Like maybe they won't work, you know, the normal, like nine to five hours. Cause they have a kid at home, but trust them to get their work done. And, but also understand this isn't normal right now, right? We're not just working remotely. We're working remotely in a pandemic. And I think just having that human understanding that people are going through different stuff, yeah, so that was a lot, but I think I think the biggest thing is like have empathy, don't invade people's privacy, and you know respect that folks probably need more flexibility than they might have before. So I I agree with everything Emily said, and I would just add to that. So before the coronavirus, like years ago, uh, I worked for a long time at a company where everyone was remote. It was a consulting company, and it was it was the best. Oh, it was so good. I mean, my commute <laughs> is like walking down a hallway. Traffic was the cat, and you know, you got work done. <laughs> and just as Emily was saying, it was a community where like we just we were on Google Hangouts all the time, talking as we needed. But like, no one was checking your hours. No one was making sure you did this by then. Like it was just it was like everyone assumed everyone else was adult, and you just got your work done, and it was great. And we got our work done, and we consulted, and we made money or whatever. 
I think that was great. And the corona, I think it's a very different environment now where everyone's suddenly forced to do it. There's childcare issues. Like, it's very different. But I think the idea, as Emily was saying, of like, everyone gets their stuff done is fine. I could never, that being said, like, once this virus is over, I could never be the one remote person on a team mm. where no one else is remote. Like, Emily was talking about having two people at Warby doing that. I could never do that. Because I have real, you know, FOMO, fear of missing out. And I just every day would be like, oh, they're having a party at the office and they're talking about me and I'm not there. So I would really struggle with that. And I think, like, trying to solve that problem is a perpetual dynamic thing. But I think that's kind of different than perhaps the problem we have right now where literally everyone is forced to be remote. Yeah, and I think when we are remote, it is possible, as we're hearing from all these case studies, to be successful as long as we are tracking and tracing COVID, not employees, <laughs> right? So, yeah. um, you know, we see all those track and trace apps. But, uh, you know, I think remote is not only for work as we're moving into this digital first or digital only life for an extended period of time, it's not only our work, but it's everything, the entire work-life balance. We've seen a lot of, you know, Instagram celebrities and, you know, athletes who are now doing live trainings on Instagram Live and Zoom and all these sessions. And one of the big missing pieces in the data science life for a lot of engineers has been meetup culture, conference culture, you know, traditionally, this is in person, right? We're flying or we're submitting research or presenting at conferences, both of yourselves, right? As newly minted authors as well, you go to conferences and share. What do communities look like today? You know, in my experience in New York, I've seen some of these startups like uh, the New York Tech Meetup, one of my favorite meetups all about tech. They had in the last few weeks, their first, you know, post-COVID world meetup that was all online. It went pretty smooth and there was about 100 people there. So it was pretty interesting. But the dynamics, I think, are very different. I wanted to hear from your perspectives. What are you seeing in community today in the data science world? And then, you know, we can then even step back on the more macro level. So I would say just first, you know, you're right. Meetups are important. Conferences are important. Like, what do you do when this virus is like? It's Twitter. (laughs) <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> me and Emily were on Twitter a lot. Lots yeah, but of other Twitter's data. all Twitter's all about COVID now. It's not as funny. <laughs> yeah, and it's angry. It's like an angry conference, but also very <laughs> friendly, but angry at the same time. Now, is it about like COVID with data science or just COVID in general? <sighs> and then how the White House's forecast uses a ridiculous polynomial <laughs> regression and like, cool. You know, I remember one of my first jobs out of college was um, doing forecasting. And I remember thinking polynomial regressions were terrible. And now here I am 10 years later hearing everyone talk about it. And 10 years ago, I would have been like, that's amazing that we're all talking about regressions together. And now it's like, Mm-mm, not what I wanted. The model is wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> So, but yeah, I mean, Emily's right. It's hard because everyone's just talking about their COVID lives and not like cool data science stuff, which is a bummer if you want to talk about cool data science stuff, a great place we want to talk about how difficult your life is right now, which, you know, often people do. So yeah, I mean, I've attended, you know, like I've done, I did my first virtual conference this week. I attended, it was the Women in Data Science Puget Sound Conference, and it was one day conference. It was really interesting. I thought they had a really cool program to do it. But even still, it's just, it's hard. You know, it's not the same as just seeing someone, you know, and waving at them in the conference. So it's been a struggle. Yeah, and it's definitely like we were planning to do two book launch parties, one in New York and one in Seattle, like in April, May. Of course, that's been indefinitely postponed. And like we're still doing, obviously, we're doing this podcast, like I'm doing a, I mean, one cool thing is getting to do meetups in other cities. So like I'm doing like a Pi Data Montreal is doing like a job panel meetup that I'll be participating in, which probably normally would have been local speakers, right? They wouldn't necessarily pay for me to come up to Montreal. So that's one benefit. But I do think it's harder. I'm looking forward to, I think, maybe meetups innovating by doing things like Zoom breakout rooms, like finding ways to help people connect. Because I do think that's often what I would say to people, like a big value of conferences and meetups. I mean, the talks are very valuable, but it's also like the hallway track, like whether it's catching up with people that you know, or getting to meet new people, like having those interactions, which you can't really do when it's like 200 people in a Zoom meeting. So figuring out ways to facilitate that, which I think... um, the tech and the meetups are going to, you know, as this goes on, are going to find ways to do that. Yeah. And you know, what? I think what's really interesting about the conferences is just like both yourselves, I'm following many of the data science conferences and ones that would be in person that would normally cost 
a lot of dinero have become free, right? So you could actually join these conferences online and network. And I think it's always a great time to network, especially since many of the conferences are free today. Register, get the material, learn about the new algorithms, the new techniques. I think conferences are just such a great way, whether during COVID or life after COVID, to stay relevant on what's going on in the industry. Beyond that, what are some ways that you'd recommend, you know, new data scientists or ones that are looking to up their career to get involved in community efforts? Yeah, so I think there's a couple different ways. So we mentioned Twitter before. So Twitter is a little bit taken over by COVID, which is totally understandable. But there's still some like data science Twitter. And in general, like I, we definitely recommend it to people, um, especially in the R community, like the R stats hashtag. It's a very friendly community. It's a nice way to like interact with, you know, people maybe you've admired for a while um, who are big in the community. So that's one way. I also am a big component, a proponent of doing public work. So of course we talk about building a portfolio like to get a job, but even after that, maybe continuing with doing a blog. And that's, I, I think, a great way or, or speaking, a really great way to, you know, get out there a little bit, have people start to recognize your name, know what you do. You know, normally in person meetups, I really like speaking because then people will come up to you afterward and they'll have something to talk with you about. It's like really nice at a big conference because, you know, you, you don't necessarily, I'm very introverted. Like I don't necessarily need to put myself out there. Like people like maybe heard my talk or heard of it and they'll come up and talk to me about it. Those are some of the ways, you know, and the final one is we also have advice if you want to reach out to someone specifically and a couple pieces on that, like, let's say you, you don't want to get advice from someone and like just a couple pieces of advice there is to check out the work they've already done publicly. Like maybe they've done a blog post that's like answers your question. And maybe if it doesn't fully, you could reference when you reach out to them, like, Hey, so-and-so, you know, I read your blog post on whiteboard coding interviews. I thought it was really interesting. I was wondering if you had like 30 minutes to chat about, you know, like, uh, some follow-up question on that, because I do think you don't want to necessarily just reach out with like, can you be my mentor? Or like, can I pick your brain? You want to give people like a specific time box ask and also recognize now some people have more time, but some people have a lot less time, right? So this may not be at all a good time for them, for someone they don't know. But on the other hand, maybe maybe they do have some free time and this could be an easier way to reach out to folks uh, who aren't, you know, in the same city as you because everyone's doing everything virtually anyway. I cannot agree more like this so much to what you just shared there, Emily. I mean, you know, myself as well, uh, you know, I publish in Towards Data Science on Medium and have a lot of content out there. And, you know, when I've had people reach out to me and they say, oh, I read your article and I have some more questions and this is the question I have. I'm saying, wow, this is so awesome. You read the Mm -hmm. article and you have questions. I give my time, you know, free time, right? Free, like, I love this. This is so awesome. So I totally um, say that to anyone, whether you're starting out your career or you're building your career, if there's someone you're looking up to, you have a question on, read their body of literature or work and be sure to, you know, invite that into the conversation when you reach out. It is such a fantastic way to build rapport with your new audience. And speaking of just overall audiences, I mean, we are in such an incredible, unprecedented, I'm going to use that word time as it's the most popular word of the year beyond COVID, um, (laughs) where everyone is experiencing potentially burnout, right? We're in a world where there's really no more work-life balance or it doesn't seem so as much. And I know for me, one thing I've done to minimize burnout has been working out daily. And I brought back the beach body workouts that I used to do in the early 2010s now to a daily practice to keep myself consistent, not only in shape, but to like have that balance. What are either some things that both of you are doing today to you know minimize burnout? Sure. So, you know, it used to be, just as Emily was kind of saying, it used to be that what I would do in my free time is like more data science stuff. I write blog <laughs> posts. We wrote a book together, like make fun projects, make a weird thing about generating neural networks for pet names. You know, like I do all these things as like, oh, in my free time, I'm going to do more work. And, you know, in the last couple of months, I just hit a point in my life where I'm like, this has to change. I need an actual break. Like I am, this is burning out. And so I've picked up art. So I've been doing a lot of watercolor and oil pastel. And, you know, it's been nice to just have something that is just totally not tech to like 
put a little bit of my heart into. And I also, it's actually surprisingly challenging because I notice my brain is trying to do the same thing I do with a blog post and like improve my content. I'm like, oh, is this art going to generate the most likes on Twitter? Like, oh, like, like, what point can I sell this art? And like, it's really forced me to recognize how much I do this and like dial it back. So I really struggled with that a little bit. But that being said, I've been really happy with it. And it's funny because, yeah, my Twitter feed used to be all my data science take hot takes or whatever. Now it's just filled with my art. That's like a nice, a nice change. Yeah. And for me, uh, you mentioned like exercise. Uh, so I came out in mid-March to Utah to stay at my parents' place. And one thing that's really helped me is that like around like, so I've been keeping about New York hours. So around like 4.35, usually I'll go for a walk and we have a dog out here and I'll go for like half an hour, 45 minutes, which has been a really nice way to like sort of signal the end of the day, get some exercise, get outside like and have fun. So I think that's something that I found like really important and definitely helped me. And I do think that can be harder in some places than others. Like a lot of my friends in New York City, right, they don't feel comfortable doing that because maybe they're on high floors in their apartment buildings. And so it's either like take 10 flights of stairs or take an elevator and then the streets are crowded. So I, I definitely do, you know, and you have to adapt somewhat to like where you are and, and the circumstances. And so maybe for someone else, that's like doing a yoga class instead in that virtual yoga class for like half an hour. Um, but I think it's a nice, it's nice to have something that kind of signals the end of the day. One of the biggest things that I'm so love that you just brought up, Emily, is that if you're in a big city, if you're in a big building, we don't do this enough in America, but everyone take the stairs. It's such a great opportunity to get exercise now. I don't do it often enough, but sometimes I'll take at least 20 flights of stairs to my building and it is a great workout. You know, you do a little bit of core, you do a little bit of cardio. You do that a couple times a day or a few times a week. It can be helpful. But enough about moving our bodies and moving our minds to different skills like art. How about moving on? I think our, our final topic we'll talk about today is, of course, we're in these unprecedented times with COVID. But often in careers, you know, people think about when do I move on? As in, can I move to a more senior role or can I leave my company or if my company doesn't even exist anymore and I've been furloughed. There's so many interesting things right now. I want to dive into them a little bit. So first and foremost, let's start with the least severe. You know, you're currently working at a company. This is like even prior to COVID and post-COVID and you're determining what's next. Should I leave the company? Should I stay? What's your general take for data scientists? You know, at the, at the current moment, it's certainly more riskier to like leave without another job lined up, for example, you're not necessarily taking on a huge risk by job searching. Like it might be harder and you're getting fewer leads, but you know, if you're staying at your company, that should be secure. But in general, I think a big thing we talk about as a signal is, are you still learning? Because data science is a field that, you know, progresses fairly quickly. And of course you can never know everything, but you want to look back, you know, three, six months a year and be like, oh, wow, I can do some things I couldn't do before. Whether that's you get more comfortable with the cloud, you're a better R programmer, you're better at dealing with stakeholders, right? It's not just technical skills, a lot of different skills, but you know, are you still learning? And the second part we talk about is, is there anything, and I think this may be especially important now where it's harder to leave, is there stuff that you're unhappy with that you can maybe change? So for example, you know, I remember at one of my jobs, like I was talking to a boss and I was like, oh, you know, I'm not really like enjoying doing this work or sort of like these road analyses of A-B tests. I didn't really think there could be anything done about it, but I mentioned it to him and he's like, oh, you know, like it could be an opportunity for us to hire an intern. You know, we actually, we have the budget, you know, this could be a mentoring opportunity for you. It's probably more work like the first couple of weeks, but then they could, you know, take it on and uh, free you up to do some other work. And I would have never thought of that. So I'm glad I raised that with him. And so I do think thinking about, um, you know, what are, am I making any assumptions about what's not changeable, right? Am I assuming that, you know, I can't do a different type of work? Am I assuming that this project like has to go on forever? Am I assuming that the team I work with is fixed? You know, and approaching and talking to your manager about that and, and approaching it not as in like, I hate everything, you must fix it now, but being like, hey, like being honest, if you have that good relationship with your manager about like, hey, here are some things I'm struggling with or, you know, some thoughts I'm having. Is there anything we can do to change that? And it looks like Jacqueline has some more thoughts on this. Jacqueline's actually been a manager, so I think she will have some very good insights. Well, yeah. I think, I mean, I agree with everything Emily is saying, of course. Very great co-author. No, um, uh -huh. but, but, <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> um, I think I would just add that, like, I think there are probably things that can be changed. 
there often are a lot of things that cannot be changed. And sometimes people aren't always clear on what can and can't be changed and expect you to change things that you can't change, right? If, you know, Emily's story where the manager said, let's hire an intern, you can imagine the manager just being like, well, automate it. And Emily could have been like, well, actually automating it would take eight months and would be more work than this, you know? And then it's like, well, think of a way out, right? Like there are situations where people expect you to do things you couldn't possibly do. And I think for me, I found in my career, the times where I've had the most, okay, it's time for me to go, is when there have been the most of these unrealistic pressures and not an ability to talk about them. So I think as Emily's saying, like, oh, if you have a good manager, you can talk about these things. If you don't have a good manager and you can't talk about these things, that often, for me, has been the indication that it maybe is not the right long-term job for me. Oh, yeah. I think that's a big thing that we came in the book. Like, the manager's really important. Like, actually, that's that's maybe the biggest signal. If you have a bad manager who you feel like isn't helping you, like, it's not psychologically safe to talk about, you know, it, it, like Jacqueline's saying, like, not understanding things, then that that could be a real a real signal that it's that it's time to move on. Yeah. And then the final thing is like, of, of you know, and there are some things that are just out of your control to change. Like maybe your manager recognized that too. Like we were talking to someone who works in, in the military and like they can't install R or Python in their computer. So they have to do everything Excel. And like maybe one day with like the help from people way higher up that could change, but he is not going to be able to change that because there's lots of security reasons why they do it. So maybe, and maybe, you know, he or someone else will reach a point being like, I no longer want to do a job where I can't do this. So I'm going to leave the military. I'm going to leave you know, government or these more restrictive places to go to a place where there's much more freedom and technology, because that's, I've realized that's important to me. I would just say, um, it's also kind of, people always talk about having like a five-year plan and like a goal. And you're like, what are your goals? And I think I find that very frustrating because my five-year plan has probably changed once every six months in my whole life. You know, like I'd never had that much stability, but I think there are long-term things you can shoot for in data science. You know, if you think about the way data science jobs works, usually you start as a data scientist, which means you've like, you've been out of school for like maybe less than five years you're working. They become a senior data scientist. And that means like, okay, you're independent on your own. You can be trusted to do analyses, make models, whatever. And then from there, it kind of branches. And then you could kind of become like a manager, which is your job is to keep the other data scientists working and make things run smoothly. There is a principal data scientist, which is like now you are the data scientist who like has the most thoughtful ideas about doing the models. And you're really like the technical expert and mentor technical components, whereas a manager just keeps everyone, you know, goal aligned strategy wise and uh, kind of like working with stakeholders. And then lastly, there's, you could just ditch the system entirely and become like a consultant and work as like a freelancer, which is what I've been doing, which can have a huge payout and huge opportunity, but also is incredibly stressful, very risky, and just almost impossible to do right now, given the virus. So, uh, you know, we even when we were writing the book, I made the wording very strong about like, hey, be careful about this. And now if it were released, if I were writing it today, I would probably make it even stronger. Mm. Well, thinking about like strong emotions, but more around excitement in technology (laughs) today in 2020. One thing that I love is that, you know, a lot of research and data science teams have learning Fridays where they, you know, cover research or review different, you know, state of the art things. And one thing I've recently seen is the snorkel dry bell from Google, which is helping with data labeling and synthetic data. And I've been so excited about just where the world of data is going to go. That's what excites me today in 2020. What are some things in technology that are exciting both of you? So I want to say, and this is like controversial opinion, hot take, I really do not care for giant tech company comes out with giant technology and we're supposed to be excited about it. I find that inaccessible. I find often it's misleading and like they say the technology is really good. When you dive in a little bit, it's actually quite poor. So I I do not get excited at all about that. But what I get crazy excited about is just, you know, you're on Twitter and you see someone you follow is like, hey, I released this new Python or R package that does this one particular thing. And I'm like, oh, heck yeah, I would love to do that one particular thing. And I will download it and I will try it out. And so most of my learning has come from incrementally being excited about people's own little pet projects and trying to like start utilizing them. That it has come from giant technology companies, giant new technology that's going to change the game that doesn't really change the game. And so Jacqueline, what are a couple of maybe those Python or R packages that you'd be willing to name drop for our listeners? I will today? absolutely name drop the two that I've that have been tickling me the most. I just found the most fun. And so like the point, okay, and we have a whole chapter about this in the book about like, it's about pet projects, you know, and pet projects and side projects really can help you learn more. 
And so the two packages that I've really just been keeping on toying around with is one's called Ray Shader by Tyler Morgan Hall. And it's an art package where you can take like landscapes and make like beautiful renderings of them that look like photorealistic with filters and fun colors. And it's just like incredibly gorgeous visualization of data, of like landscape data. Like I've always wanted to do that kind of stuff and I've never done it. And so the other package is a much funnier. It's um, Ryan Timpey is an R programmer who made a package that you can turn anything into Lego bricks. And so you can make like graphs <laughs> out of Lego bricks and like like Lego like portraits and stuff. And it's just both of these things are like really funny. And I like, I just really like funny and interesting. And I really just like, it really just invigorates me to take their projects, these like R packages, and then use them to make new things and make my own art. And like, it keeps me engaged in thinking about programming and data science in a way that Google releasing BERT too, you know, it doesn't connect to me uh, as much. Yeah, I really love seeing like the new projects, like new things people are doing. But I think like what I get very excited about too is like when folks start sharing their side projects or like blogs or like sharing some of their work, like something cool now. Uh, Julia Silgi's doing it, just started our studio as an engineer. She's been live streaming every week her analysis of the newest Tidy Tuesday data set, which is a project that releases a new data set each week. And she's been using using it to show off the new Tidy model system for system of packages for modeling in R. So I don't know. I think I just really been enjoying seeing people like having having fun, uh, like Jacqueline saying, like folks posting their ratiator thing. Someone did that, like a ratiator thing. And like, he put our book like in this like spinning thing with it, with a tree. And the, <laughs> so like, that was really cool to see. And I think the final thing I'm excited about is also more, you know, diverse voices and a, a wider diversity of people being the ones doing that sharing. And I think there's been more groups coming out that support um, different underrepresented groups is more recognition of the importance of having diversity of, uh, you know, and also the need to be thoughtful that it won't necessarily just happen. Like we've seen, I think more and more folks realizing like, okay, it's not just going to naturally happen. What are the things? I think it was maybe one of the Python maintainers who talked about like, you know, we had, it's a difference between like opening the door and like inviting someone to dance, like just because you're like, oh, you know, you, you have the opportunity open, like, you also sometimes need to put in some effort to extend the invite to let people know that they're explicitly welcome and wanted because a lot of these groups haven't historically been excluded, have not necessarily been wanted, have had negative experiences. So I've been excited to see like what's happening in the data science community and the recognition of like how important that is. I mean, in writing our book, like I think we have a majority women uh, interviewees and it wasn't like, that was not an intentional thing we did. It's like, I can't think of you know, a fair amount, like there's some people in Python or R, but like, I couldn't imagine like asking someone nowadays who is like active in the R community, like, oh, name some of the top, like, you know, people in the R community or programmers and not naming any women, right. In a list of 10, because there are so many, you know, prominent folks out there. So I think there's more to be done with other groups, um, you know, including like, uh, people of color, but I've also seen, you know, some meetup groups and other efforts for that. So that's, what's exciting to me. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, it used to really be the idea that if you were going to be a knowledgeable person on AI and data science, then you had to be a, a man with a PhD working at Stanford. Um, <laughs> and I think that is like, is becoming, people don't believe that anymore or, you know, less, mm-hmm. fewer people believe that and fewer people are believing that every day. And I'm with Emily. It's really cool to watch. And so tying that all in together to building a career in data science, what call to action do you have for our listeners on Humane Today? I think my call to action is to try to find a way to help people. Like that's why we wrote the book. It was certainly not like so we could get fabulously wealthy and retire early. So I think whether that's helping someone at your company, whether it's writing a blog post, like answering a question on Stack Overflow, um, because I think usually people know more than they think. It's really easy to underestimate the knowledge that you have, but you probably have a lot to offer. So maybe think about what do I wish I knew six months ago or a year ago, and maybe try writing about that, mentoring someone in it, posting on LinkedIn, whatever, but just finding a way to, to share that knowledge, because I think that's really how this community thrives. And I would I would say that my call to action is first, I know a great book about building a career in data science. I highly recommend you buy it. Uh, and that is at either datasciCareer.com or the fun version of the book, which is the exact same, is at bestbook.cool. Anyway, so that's first call of action. And then the other thing, I mean, to build on Emily's point a little bit, I think that a lot of what we do in our book is we kind of just point out that 
you know, like actually conventional, like a lot, what a lot of people, what people take for conventional wisdom is ridiculous and you don't have to <laughs> take it seriously. Like, you know, this idea that for a, a the resume to the right way to apply to a company is with a resume that needs to have bullet points under every job for, and like that stuff doesn't matter. Like there's some stuff that does matter, but like a lot of the stuff you hear doesn't matter. And I think don't take conventional wisdom and assume because someone told you it once, it has to be true, including us, you know, including what we say. But oh, I, I, do I think, was going to say, but like, no, but anything in the book, like obviously. Yeah. Absolutely <laughs> oh true. yeah. That's, that's <laughs> good. Yeah. Conventional wisdom is right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say really just challenge conventional wisdom a little bit. Like what have you been assuming has been true? That like maybe isn't true. Like maybe, maybe if you're working as a data analyst, you could, you could make it and go switch to be a data scientist. Maybe you're a data analyst and being a data analyst is great. And don't let people think that being a data scientist is somehow better or different. Um, like there's conventional wisdom like that. You know, conventional wisdom, like you have to become a manager. Conventional wisdom, like your resume has to be formatted in the exact way for you to get a, a job. Like there's so much of this stuff out there that people just kind of assume is true. And the more you can kind of stop and challenge it, I think the better off you'll be. Jacqueline Nolis and Emily Robinson authors of Build a Career in Data Science by Manning Publications. Thank you for being with us today on Humane. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. Did the episode measure up to your thoughts on ML and AI, data science, developer tools, and technical education? Share your thoughts with me at humanepodcast.com forward slash contact. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review, and listen for more episodes of Humane. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.